47 years ago this month, the greatest streak in music history went out in a masterpiece. On September 28, 1976, Stevie Wonder released the landmark double album Songs in the Key of Life. A week later, it debuted at number one, the third album to ever pull off such a feat, and the first by someone not named Elton John. Five months after that, Wonder took home the Album of the Year Grammy for a record-setting third time. Wonder had been on such a run that when Paul Simon, still crazy after all the years, won in 1976, Simon jokingly thanked Wonder in his acceptance speech for not putting out any new material. Wonder's victory in 1977 capped off a half-decade of unrivaled excellence, where everything he did was a critical and commercial triumph. I don't know if I've said on the record yet that Stevie Wonder is my favorite artist, but if not, well, there it is. His songs just cook my brain like stir-fry. Personal biases aside, I'm not the first person to notice that Wonder's output between 1970 and 1976 was some next-level stuff. Across five perfect albums, Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Nate's Favorite, Inner Visions, my favorite, Fulfilling This's first finale, and the universally beloved Songs in the Key of Life, Wonder recorded some of the most innovative, creative, and just plain joyful songs ever made. All of their singles made the top 20, all but one cracked the top 10, most reached number one. A one-man hit machine, even his rejects were destined for the charts. Hits he gave away to Smokey Robinson, Aretha Franklin, and the Spinners revitalized their stalled-out careers. He launched Chaka Khan's career by writing her debut single with Rufus, the number three hit, Tell Me Something Good. Tell me something good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me that you love me. He produced Loving You, Minnie Ripperton's soul number one, a lilting ode to her newborn daughter, who was eventually SNL alumni Maya Rudolph. Cause loving you is easy cause you're beautiful and every day of my life is filled with loving you. Weirdly, three artists he discovered in this time, Michael Sambello, Denise Williams, and Ray Parker Jr., would all later top the charts with soundtrack hits from big 80s blockbusters. So thanks, Stevie, for the Ghostbusters theme, too. Songs he wrote this period were still charting decades later in the form of samples on future number ones by Coolio. And Will Smith. Or as covers like the Red Hot Chili Peppers take on higher ground that broke them into the mainstream. Wonder had conquered the world. How could he possibly follow it up? By talking to plants, of course. Mankind's first contact with the vegetable world came as a threat. It's a fight Cleve Baxter knew he could win. On February 2nd, 1966, Baxter got lost in a daydream, wondering how long water takes to travel from a plant's roots to its leaves. To find out, he hooked up an office-potted plant to a polygraph machine. Baxter's faith in polygraphs began as a CIA interrogator specializing in hypnosis and truth serums. 
Since William Moulton Marston invented it in the 1920s, the polygraph had gained a reputation as some sort of uncheatable magic box. So when Baxter started hooking up plants to it, the idea was not as far out as it seemed. Marston was responsible for another great creation around this time, famed comic book superhero Wonder Woman. Although some credit for the character belongs to his wife, Elizabeth, and their polygamous life partner, Olive Byrne. A polygraph works by measuring changes in the skin's electrical resistance. Presumably, this same effect would work on chlorophyll. Baxter hoped the polygraph could detect slight changes in moisture once the water reached the leaves. What he did not expect was for the pen to pitch downwards the same way a human would react if they were strapped in. Wanting to get a stronger reaction out of the plant, he threatened to burn it. Threats tend to cause massive spikes, but because nothing he said phased the plant, Baxter needed to see if physical pain would work. As he pulled out a set of matches, the polygraph rattled with energy, as if the plant could read Baxter's mind. And that is when Baxter's universe shifted. He was no botanist. He did not even particularly like plants. But he dedicated the rest of his life to replicating the results he got that day. He came to believe that there is telepathic consciousness binding all life on Earth. He called this theory primary perception. Early research seemed to suggest he was on the right track. Later observations indicated that plants felt threatened around dogs and could recognize particular faces. For instance, Baxter's plants perked up like loyal dogs whenever he entered a room. His discoveries also confirmed what we all have long suspected, that ficuses are racist. The practical applications for telepathic plants were suddenly endless. Plants linked up to people could spy on soldiers in the Vietnam jungle or travel aboard rocket ships with minimal resources. And in one experiment, he proved that plants could even solve a murder. In the experiment, Baxter asked six students to enter a room one by one, which contained two potted plants. One student was randomly assigned to tear a plant out of its pot and stomp all over it. The other plant stood in silence, watching his friend die. When the grisly task was completed, the surviving plant was ready to finger, or rather leaf, the culprit. Its reactions were monitored as the six students re-entered the room one at a time. As the first five students wandered in, the plant showed no emotional reaction. But as the sixth student entered, the plant began to display wild stress. The world's first plant-based police officer had successfully cracked the case. Baxter's ideas looked poised to radically change our relationship with the natural world. Luckily, as I suspected, this is all nonsense. Mainstream science remains skeptical, if not outright dismissive of his ideas. Every attempt to replicate Baxter's findings failed, and most of the polygraph responses could be explained away as simply the buildup of static electricity or errant vibrations. Critics widely mocked him as a charlatan. By the time he started hooking up electrodes to sperm and yogurt, he was all but discredited. The man was a fraud, but I wonder if one day we'll find out he was onto something. There is an appeal to the notion that all life on this planet is interlinked. I certainly feel a connection to plants, even if it's not quite telepathic. Uh, For the record, I don't believe the plants are telepathic. We'll never agree on that one. (laughs) Baxter's junk science resonated with an American counterculture already well acquainted with certain types of plants. In 1973, CIA operative Christopher Byrd and ancient ufologist Peter Tompkins compiled Baxter's research into the million-selling book, The Secret Life of Plants. Musicians last on to these ideas in the form of weird concept albums. One artist who specialized in plant music was Mort Garson, one of the stranger resumes in popular music. Garson paid the bills as a behind-the-scenes session arranger on early 60s easy-listening chints like The Sandpiper's Guantanamera, that's the first Spanish-language top 10 hit.
Glenn Campbell's By the Time I Get to Phoenix, the 20th most performed song of the 20th century. By the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. And Three Nights and a Morning, Bill Withers' debut single. In 1962, Garson wrote, Our Day Will Come, a languid, organ-soaked bossa nova paean to both young love and the civil rights movement. A year later, a cover by minor R&B harmony group Ruby and the Romantics knocked the four seasons out of number one. Not one to hold a grudge, Frankie Valli nearly brought the song back into the top ten, 12 years later. Our day will Garrison, keen to get into weirder arrangements, integrated the Moog synthesizer's futuristic wishes on abstract albums like The Zodiac, a 12-album cycle dedicated to each astrological sign, the official telecast of the Apollo 11 moon landing, and Black Mass, a record he released under the menacing stage name Lucifer. By 1972, he was scoring schlock like Beware the Blob. Garson achieved cult fandom with the 1976's Mother Earth Plantasia, an instrumental record scientifically, yeah, right, calibrated to help plants grow. Each pitch was tuned to open up the breathing cells and let in more oxygen. Curious consumers could only buy this record at a Los Angeles plant store called Mother Earth, and oddly, also a mattress company. Both locations packaged the album for free with the purchase of any houseplant. But the most high-profile artist taken in by the movement was Stevie Wonder. Wonder had long felt attuned to the natural world. Higher Ground was about reincarnation and the interconnected soul of the universe. This force even saved his life. On August 6, 1973, a loose log fell off a truck and crashed through his car window. Wonder, who was already blind since birth, additionally lost his sense of taste and smell in the accident. He spent the next four days in a coma. He only woke up when his manager started singing Higher Ground into his ear. Wonder's fingers tapped along to his composition, the first confirmation of life. No work better showcases belief in the mysticism than Stevie Wonder's Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, a soundtrack to a documentary of the same name. At his first commercial release, since Songs in the Key of Life, Motown pulled out all the stops. Motown sent out copies of the paperback edition of the book to record stores along with packets of flower seeds with the promise that the album would arrive by the time the flowers sprouted. An American chemist created a specific scent to give the album a planty smell, although analysis by the Motown Technical Department in London showed that there was a chemical in the perfume that actually corroded vinyl. Critics were invited to listen to both sides of the LP at a vegetarian banquet in New York Botanical Gardens. And when it came out, people hated it. As a standalone record, there is nothing too objectionable. Over its near 90-minute runtime, Wonder putting the synth in photosynthesis... (laughs) noodles out new agey instrumentals. Listeners were largely flummoxed by tracks where he narrates from the perspective of a bug caught in the jaws of a Venus flytrap or a love ballad to a black orchid. 
Yeah, I could see why they would be flummoxed. The man is such a consummate talent that it's not completely worthless. It has its fans. Kate Bush loved it. One of the most acclaimed records of 2019, Solange Knowles' When I Get Home, was indented to its weightless groove. Those were rare positive views. Reviewers overwhelmingly view the record as a disappointment and uncommercial overindulgence, promoting theories about telepathic mustard seeds. The public quickly turned against it, too. It did manage to push out one top ten hit, but anticipation was so high that whatever he put out was bound to do well. By the second single, the problems were clear. Stalling at a devastating low number 52, Outside My Window was Wonder's first commercial single in eight years to not break into the top 40. Sales tapered off quickly from there. It was off the charts in just 22 weeks, nearly a quarter of the time Songs in the Key of Life spent on the charts. Motown's notoriously stingy label head, Barry Gordy, reportedly complained that the one million copies he pressed turned out to be 900,000 too many. While technically not a bomb, Secret Life of Plants clearly marked the end of an era. One bonehead album was not enough to kill Wonder's career, but he never approached the rarefied air of the 70s run again. For the rest of the 80s, he skated on autopilot, too often content topping the charts with schmaltz instead of the sublime. He was still capable of flashes of genius. His relentless campaigning was largely responsible for giving Martin Luther King a holiday. A cameo appearance playing the sequencer on The Cosby Show was a flashpoint in popularizing hip-hop. Jermaine Jackson, Chaka Khan, and Dionne Warwick all had the biggest hits of their decades-long careers collaborating with Stevie. His best songs will endure. As he proclaimed in the opening of Sir Duke, last number one hit of his imperial run, music is a world within itself, with a language we all understand. After he mastered that language, he moved on to another one. Maybe someday we'll learn that one too. Hello, and welcome to Off Key. I'm Nate Youngman, and with me is uh, Sunflower, more like Dad Flower, Jeff Youngman. This week, we are giving voice to the voiceless. Our two main stories will look at people who tried to talk to things and normally do not speak back. So let's get started with Act 1, Talk to the Animals. Are You That Somebody is a musical BCAD moment. One of those game-changing records that makes everything released before it feel instantly outdated. Built on samples as diverse as baby coos to mouth clicks to oompa loompas, Aaliyah and Timbaland's R&B brain scrambler redefined what the Hot 100 would sound like in the years ahead. Together, Aaliyah and Timbaland opened the charts up to a new crop of diverse song experimenters. In the summer of 1998, the world got a little weirder and has stayed that way ever since. Yet the weirdest part of the song may be the painfully unfunny family comedy that made it all possible. It is easy to forget now, but All You That Somebody was made just to satisfy a contract. 20th Century Fox hired Aaliyah to put out the single for the updated Dr. Doolittle movie. She and Timbaland churned out the record in an all-night writing session. That last-minute soundtrack filler forever changed music history, and it is by far the only good part of the movie. Dr. Doolittle may be the most inexplicable film franchise of all time? Who, who's asking for these movies? Every 30 year, a new generation of children are exposed to Hugh Lofting's beloved creation for the first time, and each time they hate it. The most recent example happened back in 2020 when Robert Downey Jr. baffingly decided to take on the character as his first non-Iron Man role in years. This time around, the closest he came to being a superhero was pulling a set of bagpipes out of a dragon's butt. Yeah, as if bagpipes aren't annoying enough already. 
Downey followed up a career-defining role in the then-highest-grossing movie ever made with a critical and commercial bomb that lost the studio a quarter of a billion dollars. Yeah, I guess he learned how to speak turkey. Eddie Murphy's 1998 adaptation was not quite as savage by the critics and actually managed to turn a profit, but its over-reliance on poop jokes make it an absolute slog to get through. While the stretcher called either sequel a success, neither were anywhere near the spectacular failures of the first Dr. Doolittle movie, a production so doomed it nearly killed its own genre. By 1966, 20th Century Fox was desperate for a hit. After banking a series of financially ruinous flops, the studio needed a major blockbuster to bring them back from bankruptcy. They placed all their best to save the studio on a lavish, family-friendly musical adaptation of Dr. Doolittle. It made sense. In the first half of the decade, musicals like My Fair Lady and The Sound of Music were box office goliaths, still some of the best-selling movies ever made. Surely, the culture had not changed that much by the late 1960s. So in 1966, a menagerie of animals and filmmakers set off to England to shoot their guaranteed hit. Not all of them would make it back alive. The face of the fantastical family romp was Rex Harrison, a belligerent drunk notorious for belittling his co-stars with racist and anti-Semitic remarks. The prima donna was impossible to work with. He was so loathed on set that even the animals started to rebel. The leading man was constantly getting either bitten or pooped on, surely to many crew members' enjoyment. Those are the expected problems of working with animals. They had more creative ways of causing chaos too. Animals kept getting endangered in random accidents, like the goat that drank the quart of paint, the restless squirrel sedated with a bottle of gin that drank so much it fell off a ledge, or the ducks that almost drowned because they did not know how to swim. The script had to be rewritten after it was eaten by a goat, a parrot kept throwing off shoots by saying the word cut, and most absurd, Three days of filming were postponed because a giraffe stepped on its own penis, which I don't even know how that's possible. The human stars were more than capable of causing their own problems. One scene was filmed in a village that had recently been struck by a gastrointestinal epidemic caused by freshwater snails. So, when the crew rolled out a giant prop snail, the locals took it as an insult, tearing apart the invertebrate in effigy. Strangely enough, this was not even the first time residents took up arms against the movie. Most of the film was shot in Castle Combe, a scenic Wiltshire village that had zero interest in Hollywood meddling. To give the town the appearance of a tranquil Victorian hamlet, producers tore down the local TV antennas and erected a dam to make the area pond bigger. The citizens had enough of that top hat wearing dandy and planned their revenge. In the dead of night, they stuck a bunch of gas bombs onto the side of the dam and blew it up. The resulting explosion delayed production for a year. The mission was organized by then-unknown 22-year-old Ranulf Fiennes. In the ensuing years, Fiennes found fame as world's greatest living explorer. His adventurous exploits are the stuff of legend. He's climbed the highest mountains on each continent, become the first person to walk Antarctica on foot, and is the only living person to walk the Earth from pole to pole. When his fingers got frostbite in an attempted solo trek in North Pole, he sawed them off himself. His life was so amazing that MGM almost cast him to play James Bond in Live and Let Die. Producers went with Roger Moore instead. After burning through three times his budget, mending suicidal animals, and even weathering terrorist attacks, Dr. Doolittle was finally released in the fall of 1967. It was not worth it. An oppressive 152 minutes, 
audiences found the film interminably dull. Not every audience member, because I've watched it and I liked it. The main problem was the star himself. Rex Harrison was an interesting choice to lead a musical, considering he literally could not sing. Instead, Harrison delivered his lines in a wooden, sing-speak type cadence. Luckily, he still had the pipes to hit key emotional notes, like the Dewey love ballad between him and Sophie, a seal dressed up as a human woman, an intimate farewell, he kisses his marine mammal girlfriend on the lips, before flinging her off a cliff into the ocean. And to think, people did not want to see that. That was like the highlight of the movie. 20th Century Fox lost $11 million on the dud. They never attempted a big budget musical again. Producers tried to boost lagging ticket sales with manufactured Oscar buzz. Their campaigning focused on bribing Academy members with a whole lot of steak and champagne. Hey, it worked. In a year packed with competition from revolutionary films like The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle still managed to receive nine Oscar nominations. It took home two wins, including... Best original song for Talk to the Animals, a number, interestingly, Harrison insisted they cut. It beat out much better member fare like the Jungle Book's similar human-animal duet, Bear Necessities. Look for the bear necessities, the simple bear necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. And Dusty Springfield's bona fide hit, The Look of Love, from the James Bond spoof Casino Royale. While Talk to the Animals has not endured like the other nominees, it is still a fan favorite, notably thanks to crooner Bobby Darren's lively reworking. It was the one highlight of the Nightmare production. Filming was bound to be a disaster. That is what happens when you try to bring talking animals into the real world. Of course, animals can't really talk. That only happens in the movies. Or does it? If I could talk to the animals, just imagine it, chatting with a chimp and chimpanzee. Imagine talking to a tiger, chatting with a cheetah. What a neat achievement it would be. You're listening to WOHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. The problem of animal consciousness has long confounded science. We know they're saying something, we just don't have the words or squeaks or squawks to figure it out. Scientists are constantly developing new approaches to decode interspecies communication. One unlikely researcher committed to solving this biological quandary is Peter Gabriel. The former Genesis frontman launched an initiative to create a visual auditory dictionary for animals to translate their vocabulary back into English. It is a fascinating project that has so far only offered limited insight into what our gorilla brethren are thinking. Who knows what Gabriel's project might someday discover. Yeah, I'll bet it has something to do with bananas. Gabriel is not the first musician to embrace the scientific fringes. Sixty years earlier, a psychologist conducted a bizarre series of experiments that upended our understanding of animal thought, the consequences of which have rippled across pop culture for decades in some rather unexpected ways. It's fascinating to consider just how much of what we accept as true might turn out to be fundamentally wrong. For instance, up until the 1950s, nobody regarded dolphins as particularly intelligent. Today, we recognize that cetaceans are capable of complex high reasoning with their own language, societal hierarchies, and the largest relative brain capacity of any animal on Earth. They perform tricks, have served in the United States and Russian navies, and can be trained to detect cancer. 
Dolphins are so smart that one pod even rescued Dick Van Dyke when the comedic national treasure was pulled out to sea. His aquatic guardian angels guided him back to the shore. If they're saving or pioneering sitcom stars, clearly there's something more going on in those oversized heads. The first scientist to realize this natural miracle was Dr. John C. Lilly. Dr. Lilly was a hugely influential psychologist who's really talked about today, even though he made cutting-edge advancements in numerous scientific fields. He pioneered work on decompression for pilots, mapped the earliest diagrams of how each section of the brain interacts with the rest of the body, and founded the inaugural class of SETI, mankind's foremost efforts to locate alien life. It's where Jodie Foster works in the movie Contact, if that helps. He tarnished all that reputation with a simple thought experiment. What would happen to a brain if it did not have any sensory stimulation to respond to? Would the organ just shut down? To answer these questions, he invented the sensory deprivation tank, a large pod-like chamber filled with salt water. Today, sensory deprivation tanks are used globally as an alternative therapy for those struggling with mental health. Floating in the calming darkness, patients lose their sense of self. Its benefits are widely touted by the medical community, but you wouldn't see Lily's personal method advertised in your local spa anytime soon. Lily liked to take a dip in his tanks on ketamine. I shouldn't have to explain why it's a bad idea to go for a swim on muscle relaxants. Not surprisingly, Lily kept almost drowning. One time, he was only rescued because three days earlier, his wife had read an article in the National Enquirer about mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. His near-fatal experiments were all worth it, because during one session, he discovered a portal into another universe. He had accidentally made a real-life hot tub time machine. During one of his drug-induced sessions, he was contacted by three interdimensional beings that ran the local branch of the Earth Coincidence Control Office, or ECHO. ECHO runs our life. They are in charge of organizing every meaningful happy accident. According to Lily, they would have reason his wife read about CPR three days before she needed to apply it. They don't just focus on moments of serendipity. One time, Lily got mad with them because an ECHO representative had secretly replaced his penis with a bionic replica. His main complaint was not the involuntary surgery, but the lack of heads up. He shouted up at the ceiling, Hey, who's in charge up there? A bunch of crazy kids? The alien encounter got him thinking about more earthbound species. If he could speak to aliens, maybe he could talk to other life forms down here. In his uncreatively titled 1961 treatise, Man and Dolphin, Lily posited that specific dolphin pitches function as words. Therefore, if he could decipher each pitch's meaning, he could hold a first in a species conversation. He may have overstated the potential impact his findings would have. He envisioned a world where dolphins would be driving around in flooded cars and have a seat or rather tank, at the United Nations to speak on defense of marine life. Somehow, his harebrained theories actually attracted interest in the scientific community, and NASA was willing to fund the wannabe Aquaman. This was not as outlandish as it may seem, because it certainly seems pretty outlandish. In the early days of the space race, NASA needed any advantage they could find. They reasoned that if Apollo missions ever contacted extraterrestrials, the aliens almost certainly would not be speaking English, so if Lily could break down language to its most basic elements, his teachings would give America one more tool in their arsenal over Soviets. So in 1963, Lily set up a shop with a bunch of dolphins. On the Caribbean island of St. Thomas, Lily built a custom-made dolphin house, a partially submerged enclosure with water constantly circulated in to replenish the marine environment. There were rooms for dolphins, rooms for humans, and a communal space for both to use, like a flooded dining room where the two species ate lunch together. He then got three calves, all former children stars on the TV show Flipper, to live in the Oceanside Laboratory. To run the facility, he appointed volunteer naturalist Margaret Howe Lovett. Though not expertly trained or educated, 
Levitt was preternaturally good with animals. The only qualification Lily required before hiring her was that she had read Planet of the Apes. She had. Proof, Lily thought, that Lovett was secretly sent by Echo to help him complete his work. While most of her team's studies focused on dolphin-to-dolphin communication, Lily put Lovett in charge of his true passion project, teaching dolphins English. To truly connect with the creatures, Lovett permanently moved into the lab, sharing it with her dolphin roommate, Peter. The two spent essentially every waking hour together. Each lesson started with Lovett pronouncing words and explained their meanings. Lovett was a stern teacher, chastising Peter when he clicked and whistled in Dolphinese. After a month of intense training, Peter showed signs of significant progress. He could effectively mimic her speech and understand a few phrases. For instance, here is an audio recording of Lovett teaching Peter basic counting. One, two, three. Lovett was hopeful that interspecies communication might be just around the corner. Unfortunately, as sometimes happens, sex got in the way. Lovett would be in mid-lesson when an adolescent Peter would be overcome by hormones. He was particularly fond of Lovett's leg, insistently rubbing himself on her whenever he could pin her down. His affection grew increasingly troublesome. It got to the point where Peter's horniness might start setting back the research. A true warrior of science, Lovett simply took matters into her own hands. Without diving too deeply into exactly how she handled Peter's urges, let's establish it was purely non-sexual. She simply did what had to be done to keep the experiment running. Afterwards, Lovett went right back to his studies, hardly skipping a beat. All in a day's work. Hustler saw things a bit differently. Running a story under the headline, In a Species Sex, Humans and Dolphins, the porno mag sensationalized the nature of Lovett and Peter's relationship. The exaggerated retelling unfairly maligned Lovett's legitimately groundbreaking work, painting her as a pervert. Lovett was humiliated. She went around shops trying to buy every copy of Hustler she could find to prevent anyone from reading about her. But now she's a weirdo with dozens of Hustlers in her shopping basket. Pretty thing can't win either way. <laughs> the scientific community turned on Lily and Lovett. This was the beginning of the end. Funding dried up and the two were reduced to laughingstocks. With the project over, Lovett moved on from her work. A grief-stricken Peter dove to the bottom of his tank and refused to come up for air. Lily became a true French scientist, dropping deep into the rabbit hole of psychedelia. He started dosing dolphins with LSD just to see what would happen. Apparently, there were no side effects, but like, how would he know? They couldn't tell him. The once great scientific mind was reduced to nothing more than curiosity. The strange saga of John Lilly and Margaret Lovett's experiments has left a fascinating cultural footprint. Hollywood has twice adapted their research into highly fictionalized works. First, in 1973's The Day of the Dolphin, a ridiculous George C. Scott-led B-movie, which happens to sport one of my all-time favorite taglines in movie history. Unwittingly, he trained a dolphin to kill the President of the United States. Yeah, it's been there, brother. Seven years later, William Hurt star-making turn in Altered States was a thinly-veiled version of Lily. Even if you have not seen the influential cult flick, you are probably familiar with at least one scene. Its horrifying visions of drug-fueled psychosis led to one of the most iconic images of the MTV era. The stomach-turning ending where a cannibalistic ape-man and interdimensional light monster slammed their bodies against the walls to return to their flesh-and-blood selves was copied in a much lighter film, the transcendently cheesy music video for AHA's Take On Me. Lily's free-spirited ethos directly changed cinema history, too. A young protege who got swept up in Lily's world of psychoactive meditation was Jeff Bridges. Bridges leaned on his mentor's eccentricities to color his performance in 1998's Big Lebowski. That's right, Lily was the original dude. 
Hey, that alone justifies everything Lily's ever done. The most overt reference to Lily's work was the beloved Sega Genesis video game Echo the Dolphin, taking its name from the initials for Lily's preferred extraterrestrial oversight community. The Earth Coincidence Control Office surely appreciated the nod. A perfect synthesis of Lily's two obsessions, players control a porpoise as it navigates waterways until it uncovers a tricked-out time machine to fight nightmare-inducing giant aliens. Echo the Dolphin's main draw was its hypnotic ambient soundtrack. The looping synth lines are so memorable that they ended up inspiring a whole new genre. In 2010, Daniel Lupperton, performing under the one-time alias Chuck Person, released Echo Jams Volume 1. There is yet to be a Volume 2. Though not directly sampled on the album, the titular video game looms large over the project, even ripping off portions of the original Sega cartridge artwork for its album cover. Echo Jams imitated Echo the Dolphin's otherworldly atmosphere by pilfering snippets and choruses from a grab bag of hits across music history. The resulting clips were then fed back into the processor, chopped up, distorted, looped, and reconfigured into a hazy collage of familiar sounds. Leagues of imitators across the internet followed in its wake, Frankensteining random songs together. Echo Jams had single-handedly created a new art form. It was called Vaporwave. Vaporwave is a historical anomaly, a music scene with no central geographical location. As the first genre conceived on the internet, the community was fractured. It could be appreciated by audiences anywhere, which functionally meant that it was heard nowhere. While Vaporwave is built upon popular music, the genre is not really in conversation with the charts. This is more of a one-way relationship. Yet there have been moments of crossover, the most high-profile coming from another Lopatin production. After abandoning the Chuck Persons persona, Lopatin started working under the stage name One of Tricks Point Never. An indie darling, he has produced records for Charlie XCX, FKA Twigs, and Soccer Mommy. You know the source of artists they play on home. In 2020, he netted his biggest client, Canadian coke fiend The Weeknd. Their partnership culminated in the number two record, Don FM. The album is drenched in vaporwave influences, especially down to its central gimmick of a dystopian easy listening mixtape for an euthanasia clinic. On Spotify, the album's two most streamed tracks are OPN productions that wear their vaporwave influences the proudest. Is there someone else, and my favorite, out of time? Lily died in 2001, 22 years ago this month, actually. He left behind a complicated legacy that has only become increasingly weirder in the years since. Lovett is still around, happily married to a photographer she met working at the Dolphin House. I should specify, the photographer was a human. While I never did crack Dolphin into human communication, their work fully established how we share a planet with other sentient life. This realization sparked a wave of ecological reforms, including the successful passage of the Marine Mammal Protection Act. That is something worth talking about. To close us out, here is a bunch of hyper-intelligent singing dolphins preparing for the world to be blown up by aliens in Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm sure Lily would have approved. You're listening to WOHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. Hey, good story, Nate. 
although some of that stuff with the dolphins kind of escaped. But we're going from dolphins now to dolls. Now in Act 2, Toy Story. When you wish upon a star, make no difference who you are. Walt Disney's empire is built on magic. Even his production logos are whimsical. The first thing audiences hear when they watch a Disney movie is the central refrain of When You Wish Upon a Star. Written by Lee Harline and Ned Washington for the 1940 animated classic Pinocchio, the optimistic prayer for a better life has resonated far beyond its wooden puppet origins. Later that year, Glenn Miller's cover of the song topped a precursor of the Hot 100 for five weeks. The melody still worked two decades later when Brian Wilson lifted it for one of his earliest recordings. Surfer Girl, the Beach Boys' second top ten hit, borrowed much of its musical and lyrical structure from the Disney standard. Cosmic Funksters, Earth, Wind, and Fire, quote the song's title in the opening lines of their number one hit, Shining Star. Firmly a part of the American canon, the song has been covered by musicians in every genre. It's remarkable that people even remember the song in the first place. The great irony of the song is that the signature tune of the world's most successful entertainment company is from one of their rare flops. Coming off the unprecedented box office success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, there was no way Pinocchio could match expectations. Anything less than a record-setting smash would feel like a disappointment. Disney still tried their best to make it happen. Pinocchio was given double the budget of Snow White's. That extra money did not help much. Pinocchio failed to recoup even half of its predecessor's ticket sales. Thanks to later reissues, the movie eventually turned a profit, but the company initially lost millions on the release. The first sign of how bad things were going to turn out came at the disastrous New York City premiere. To celebrate the grand occasion, Disney hired 11 little people to dress up in puppet costumes. They were stationed on top of Rockefeller Center's large marquee and waved to the crowds below. The troupe was stuck waiting outside in the hot sun for several hours with nothing to do to pass the time other than work on a large supply of wine. Alcohol flowed through their tiny overworked bodies, its intoxicating effect hitting the exhausted crew almost immediately. The drunken, sweaty dwarves, no longer in a family-friendly mood, started shouting obscenities at the passing filmgoers. If that wasn't upsetting enough, they ditched their clothes and started running around naked. The police were unsure how to disperse a crowd of drunken, sweaty new dwarfs. In fairness, this is not a common request. They came up with a rather unorthodox, if slightly inhumane solution. When the cops got on the roof, they pulled the disrupted little people off in pillowcases. That's right, they stuffed them in sacks like varmints. The public relations debacle was an inauspicious omen for the rest of the film's luck. It was bound to be a disaster. That is what happens when you try to bring talking toys into the real world. Of course, toys can't really talk. That only happens in the movies. Or does it? Come on, Barbie, let's go party. Twenty twenty three is shaping up to be a banner year for living dolls. January saw the release of surprise crowd pleaser Megan. Greta Gerwig's Barbie has dominated the summer blockbuster season. Uh, and of course, there's this episode of Off Key. Big hits all around. Barbie has proven particularly enduring, its cultural reach stretching far beyond the screen. In a rare feat in the streaming age, Barbie's soundtrack cracked out multiple top 20 hits. There's Dua Lipa's frothy neo-disco Dance the Night. Watch me dance, dance the night away. My but you will see it on my face. Watch me Billie Eilish's watery heartsick, What Was I Made For? But I'm not sure now what I was 
And because it's a record about Barbie, the unavoidable inclusion of Nicki Minaj. And I'm bad like the Barbie. I'm a doll, but I still want to party. Pink felt like I'm ready to bend. I'm a 10, so I pull in a can. Minaj shares credit with up-and-coming rapper Ice Spice and Europop holdovers Aqua on their number seven hit Barbie World. The same chart peak Aqua reached a quarter century early with their mercilessly chipper Barbie Girl. It's a wonder Mattel let anything associated with Aqua anywhere near its authorized IP. Mattel spent years dragging Aqua to court in a notoriously drawn-out trademark case. It got to the point where Judge Alex Kaczynski issued his final order. He closed his opinion with the warning that the parties are advised to chill. <laughs> He's a hip judge, I guess. Mattel's legal argument hinged on the idea that Aqua's cartoonishly raunchy lyrics defiled Barbie's wholesome image. That reputation is as plastic as a recifer because the original Barbie was a German sex doll. While vacationing in Switzerland, Barbie's creator, Ruth Handler, saw other young girls decorating a Bill Lilydow, a pocket-sized model of a namesake call girl from a German comic strip. Bill Lilydows were risque trophies men handed to women to make their romantic intentions clear. Disregarding any of the cultural baggage, Handler modeled Barbie's prototype on Bill Lilly's buxom dimensions, eventually becoming the global icon currently taking over the local cineplex. It was not the first German toy to change popular culture, Perhaps the only doll to rival Barbie's title as the world's single most famous toy is the teddy bear. I would, yeah, I can see that. Named in honor of President Theodore Roosevelt's famed conservationist efforts, a cause only slightly undermined by his tendency to kill every animal he saw on sight, the assigned doll was mass-produced by German toy manufacturer Steiff. Steiff did not have much luck with their William Howard Taft-themed follow-up, the Billy Possum. I swear it was a real. Like with Barbie, teddy bears have left an oversized impact on popular culture including musically. For a telling example, in 1957, Elvis had a number one hit with a song called Teddy Bear. And less than a year later, a band called the Teddy Bears were at number one. That is the only time anything like that has ever happened. But for the strangest way a toy has shaped popular music, we have to look at a much less celebrated doll in the Stife catalog, a hand-sewn, child-sized clown mannequin made out of human hair. Just what every child wants. That doll did not become a childhood icon on the scale of Teddy Bear or Barbie, but it certainly left an impression on one peculiar little boy. The consequences of their friendship continues to reverberate, but at quite the cost. The audio you just heard was a recent rendition of Of Time and the River by 1930s songwriting couple Anne and Jean Otto. Jean wrote the lyrics to Anne's music and together the pair composed some of the most painfully 1930s song titles I've ever heard like Isn't It Ducky, Down in the Caribbean, No Mr. Jones, I Can't Say No, and They're the Soviets. Nearly a century later, little remains of their career. I could not find the original recordings of any of these songs, but at that time, Ann Otto was regarded among the greats. Ann started playing piano at age five, specializing in the instrument at the Grand Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Her music passion took her to Paris, where she toured Europe as a concert pianist for much of the 1920s, even playing a performance for King George V of England. Ann's music also captured the attention of a traveling artist, Jean Otto. The two quickly married and started up their songwriting partnership. Anne carried on performing for, on her own, earning an ongoing residency as the featured entertainer of Rockefeller Center's prestigious Rainbow Room. 
Some of the best-selling artists of the era covered her songs. Jimmy Brierley, the tenor for the Paul Whitman Orchestra, charted on a precursor of the Hot 100 with a cover of Of Time and the River. His rendition is my pick for the weirdest hit song of all time, because it is, to my knowledge, the only hit song whose writers were killed by a haunted doll. In 1894, Thomas and Minnie Otto had a problem. Their four-year-old son, Robert Eugene, or as everyone called him, Gene, was struggling to make friends. To cheer the lonesome boy up, his parents gifted him with a child-sized doll. Gene loved it. He called the toy Robert after his first name. The two were as inseparable as siblings, sometimes even wearing matching sailor outfits. They spent every moment together laughing and playing. This is standard childhood fun, an overactive imagination of a lonely boy palling around with a friend. Everything seemed normal until the doll started talking back. Thomas and Minnie often heard multiple voices coming from Gene's bedroom as he played. First Gene couldn't say something, then another rougher voice would reply. The eavesdropping parents could not quite place the second voice. Oftentimes it sounded insistent and malevolent, while Gene sounded unnerved and flustered. Many times Gene's mother would walk in the room and find her son cowering in a corner, arms wrapped around his knees, while Robert sat on the bed, glaring up from above. Of course, Gene's parents dismissed the scene as a standard, if rather dark, game of make-believe. Over time, things started to happen that made them second-guess their first thought. On a number of occasions, the Ottos awoke to the sound of Gene screaming in his bedroom. When they rushed into his room, they found his furniture overturned and belongings strewn about. Gene pointed the blame to Robert. Robert did it became something of a catchphrase in the Otto household, a common saying to explain every broken toy, shredded piece of clothing, or shattered vase. Gene's infuriated parents simply ignored their son's insistent scapegoating as a clumsy lie of a naughty child. However, there were an increasing number of mysterious incidents that they couldn't so easily explain away. Distant giggles echoed through the house. Guests heard the patter of scurrying feet coming from different rooms while the family was away. Neighbors reported seeing the doll moving from one window to another, glancing out through the curtains toward the street. Servants found Robert in different parts of the house from where they last saw him. All of this became too much. Who cares if it was really Robert doing it? Either way, it had to end. Jean's great-aunt told the Ottos that they should get rid of the doll once and for all. On her recommendation, Robert was stuffed up in the attic, no longer able, they hoped, to cast his bad juju. They did not act fast enough. The next morning, the aunt was found dead. This was likely just a tragic coincidence of timing. The doctors ruled it a stroke, but Thomas and Minnie weren't so sure. And so, out of fear for future reprisals, Robert returned to Gene's side. As all kids do, Gene eventually grew up. He and Anne had to run as globe-trotting musicians before settling down in domestic simplicity. But after Gene's parents passed away, the couple moved back to his old childhood home in Key West. To Anne's increasing discomfort, Gene reacquainted with his old buddy. Yet again, Robert and Gene were best friends. Falling back into his childhood habits, Gene carried Robert from room to room, sat him on the table while the couple ate, and propped him up to watch over them as they slept. Did Gene befriend Robert because he had no other friends, or did Gene not make any friends because he kept hanging out with a doll? This is a sort of chicken and egg situation. Anne, on the other hand, hated the doll. Makes sense. She was deeply disturbed by her husband's unhealthy attachment. Unnerved by its presence, she demanded Gene lock the creepy toy back in the attic. Hopefully that would give her some peace. It worked for a while, but then the same type of strange occurrences started happening again. Soft giggling, light footsteps in the attic, and random messes. There has never been a cohesive explanation for what occurred in the Otto's house, but it does not really matter. Anne spent her last years haunted by fears that something was out to get her. Years of paranoia eroded her mental health. In 1979, she died a shell of her former self. When it comes to Anne Otto's untimely death, this is one thing we can inarguably say Robert did. 
Today, Robert Nadal is housed behind glass as the main attraction of the East Martello Museum in Key West. Visitors brave enough to take a photo of Robert must ask him permission first. Inconsiderate guests that fail to ask before snapping a picture have reported their cameras breaking or photos coming up blurry shortly after. I can personally vouch for the curse's potency. Earlier this summer, when we went down to Key West for a wedding, I paid a visit to say my hello to Robert. I snuck a photo of him on my phone. A week later, I dropped my phone, breaking it beyond repair. The curse struck again. While there, I stopped in the gift shop and bought a replica of Robert. So I am pleased to say that in off-key first, we have a special guest on this week's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce Robert the Doll! Now, Robert, do you have anything you want to say? Oh, yeah, that's right. Dolls can't talk. All right. Thanks, Robert. (laughs) As shown by the success of Megan, Annabelle, and Chucky, audiences can't get enough of killer dolls. Robert, a template for those other tales, has not had as much luck on the big screen. The Robert series of films has certainly taken liberties with the source material. Different installments have seen Robert teaming up with Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin to unleash an army of evil. This is a serious upgrade from a lonely painter and his annoyed wife. Outside of his movies, Robert exists more as an urban legend, some sort of Floridian boogeyman. The problem with supernatural tales like Robert is that people just want to hear a good ghost story. Elements change with each retelling. Facts are cut or embellished to add more thrills. We tried to only recap what historians generally agree actually happened, even those facts are too weird to be believed. But that's just a convenient thing to tell yourself. Whatever Anne and Jean Otto experienced left them scarred for life. It was certainly real to them. In the need to tell a good yarn, storytellers forgot that there were real people involved. As a result, most accounts turned Anne Otto into a footnote of her own life. She was a legitimately talented entertainer who deserves to be remembered for more than just the moment she hated the most. For instance, in her lifetime, the musician was celebrated for making the best key lime pie in Key West. Quite the feat, considering that was where the dessert was invented. I guess Anne liked to write her songs in the key of lime. It all comes together, folks. It all. <laughs> in a salute to Anne, we are going to read out her famous recipe. It's what she would have wanted to be known for more anyways. So get yourself out a pen and paper so you can write this down. You will need six egg yolks, slightly beaten, one can sweetened condensed milk, one half cup of lime juice, one 9-inch baked pie shell, six egg whites, and 12 tablespoons of sugar. First, mix the egg yolks and condensed milk. Add lime juice and blend well. Turn into pie shell. Bake at 350 degrees until set, about 10 to 15 minutes. Meanwhile, beat egg whites until very stiff. Put on pie by large spoonfuls, spreading at edge to pie shell all around. Place in a 400-degree oven for 5 minutes. Reduce heat to 300 degrees and bake until meringue is a pale honey colored. And there you have it. Give it a try this Halloween. A perfect treat for appropriately spooky little trick. All right, Dad. Fascinating tale. I'm a big fan of Rob the Doll, and I have one right here. Can we get rid of it now, please? <laughs> All right. Um, do you have anything to uh, close us out? Okay, We've run out of time, as we seem to do these days, but to close our show, here's another great Key West musician, the recently departed Jimmy Buffett. We just wanted to include him in as a farewell. All right, that's our show. So long, everybody. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Scared you, didn't I? <laughs>